Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Conan Grahams is my guest for most of the hour today. He's a Utah native, a lawyer, lobbyist. He's held top positions in the pharmaceutical industry. He's a former general counsel for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, or Pharma, the trade organization that represents the world's largest uh, or leading pharmaceutical companies. Graham said that he was always proud to be part of the pharmaceutical industry and its efforts to save lives. Others point out problems they see with big pharma, excessive lobbying power, inadequate distribution of uh, life-saving drugs, and promotion of a medical culture too dependent on drugs. We'll talk about some of those issues, as well as relief efforts in Japan. When the earthquake and tsunami hit in 2011, Conan Grahams was working as Area Director of Public Affairs for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He became heavily involved in coordinating relief efforts. Uh, he's in Logan to give the Dean's Convocation at the John M. Huntsman School of Business on the USU campus. That's 11.30 this morning in the George S. Eccles Business Building. And uh, that 11.30, he'll discuss uh, ethics, international business, and relief efforts in Japan. The Convocation address is free and open to the public. Later in the program, we'll be joined by professional magician Richard Hatch, whose new children's book has just been published. It's called Taro-san, the Fisherman and the Weeping Willow Tree. It was inspired by the ancient Japanese feat of Nankin Tamatsuduri, and, uh, in which bamboo sticks are manipulated into figures, and the art of the great Japanese master Hokusai. Hatch includes his telling of this tale, illustrated by the mysterious Tamasuduri Matt in many performances. That'll be coming up later in the program. Right now, we welcome in Conan Grahams. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. Uh, so your lecture later today, uh, I imagine a lot of the audience will be students. You'll be discussing international business, ethics, relief efforts in Japan. I'm interested in the, in the, in the topic of ethics. This is one of one of the things that's emphasized, I think, more and more in business schools, certainly as one of the four pillars of the Huntsman School, uh, is is there a need to emphasize this in, in today's business world? I think there definitely is, no question about it. Um, I don't have this in front of me. I, I probably should have brought this with me, but I was looking at some information just this morning, um, and I found a slide from an earlier presentation about ethics among college students comparing uh, the 19, I think, uh, 70s with, uh, with the 2000s in terms of cheating on exams and uh, s- stealing materials and sharing uh, exam information. And it was really incredibly um, disturbing to see the decline in ethics among students. So one of the messages I hope to convey today is that it starts here. We can't just blame the businessman for the lack of ethics. I think it's, it starts at a much younger age and sort of the disregard for ethics. Uh, so it's something we need to work on um, right from the beginning, and I'm glad to be here today to address the subject with the students. Looking mm-hmm. forward to it. Can, can ethics be uh, legislated, you might, uh, you might call it, from in a business culture, or does it have to be internal? Does this have to start with uh, with the student, him or herself? Well, we, we would hope it would start with the student. There's, <clears throat> As you know, there's been a lot of effort to legislate ethics, uh, particularly over the last few years. We have the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which came about as a result of the en- Enron uh, fraud uh, disaster. Um, and uh, this is good. It's a good thing. The aims are good. Um, I think you would find that this has been uh, a real burden on businesses. Uh, businessmen in general think this has put some American businesses at somewhat of an unfair uh, advantage. And a lot of foreign businesses will have stopped uh, or declined uh, invest in the United States because of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So it's, it's, the purposes are good. The end result uh, has uh, a downside to it. So it's uh, you. You can't can't say really it's a balancing act because you have to have ethics, and I think legislation helps. But we'd hope it starts from inside a person's heart. Mm-hmm. How, how it seems like every once in a while you have one of these big cases. You know, Enron. You mentioned you have the Bear Stearns and the other investment mm-hmm. houses, uh, people who were uh, creating these financial instruments that nobody understood, and then happily selling them on. <laughs> and in fact, in some cases, apparently uh, betting against their own customers. Um, on the other hand, I, I would assume that the vast majority of transactions every day are on a higher ethical footing. But you do have these these big problems that happened, and, and this financial mess almost took the economy under. So uh, I wonder where where the balance should be. Well, um, 
it, it's critical. Maybe we can jump right into the uh, pharmaceutical industry yes. uh, and use that as an example. It's what I know the best. But uh, uh, it might be a little bit shocking to know that over the last 10 years, the pharmaceutical industry has been hit with over $30 billion uh, in penalties by the Justice Department and, and states for uh, violations of the False Claims Act. Um, and so <clears throat> the, certainly the industry has had its problems in this regard. And, um, you know, if we want to go into that just a little bit, they, there's a whole bunch of things that can get uh, a pharmaceutical company uh, in trouble. But uh, the two uh, primary uh, problems that have, that have caused most of these penalties to come about is, uh, number one, the uh, um, illegal promotion of drugs in the sense that um, what, we, what we call off-label promotion. When you get your drug approved, you get a label. So, for example, if a drug is approved for uh, breast cancer and the pharmaceutical company representative walks into the doctor's office and said, you know, this drug is good for lung cancer, uh, that's a violation of FDA law and, and uh, a criminal penalty under the False Claims Act. Um, and uh, so that's like one of the big ones. It happens uh, a lot, uh, or at least it's alleged to happen a lot. Uh, it's very tempting for the sales reps. They get paid on commissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's one of the issues. The other issue is uh, what we might call incentivizing doctors and hospitals um, to, to buy the products. And um, you would think that we're talking about sort of large payments to doctors. That doesn't really happen too much. But there was, a, <clears throat> it was an era when uh, pharmaceutical companies were flying doctors to Hawaii with their wives for mm-hmm. a one-hour uh, lecture on their drug and, you know, a three-day vacation. Uh, that's, that's pretty much gone now. Mm-hmm. And, um, but uh, even down to whether, who you can take to lunch is uh, highly restricted now, and but there are still cases that have brought about penalties where pharmaceutical companies have crossed the line in terms of uh, inviting doctors or um, hospitals. We don't like to use the word bribery, but uh, I guess that's another word for it, and it's something that uh, has gotten the industry in a lot of trouble uh, over the years. Mm. Imagine there are interesting internal discussions at the top of these companies. You were you were head of legal, right, for Bristol. I was the head of international legal okay. for Bristol uh-huh. Myers, so I re- was responsible for all of the company's international legal business yeah. outside the United States. Yeah, uh, so uh, it's got to be very interesting discussions at the, the head at the top of those companies because in the life sciences, the stakes are so high. You're you're talking about life saving drugs, life enhancing drugs, uh, potential harmful or fatal side effects. Uh, of course, the industry is heavily regulated because of that. Um, but then there is these the ethical problems and regulations that you've just been talking about. Um, I, I, first of all, maybe take us behind the scenes and what uh, what happens as <laughs> are, are some of these discussions happening? I guess I should ask you. Oh, there's there's there are always lots of discussions. I, I give a lot of credit to the industry. I I used to joke that when I was with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb Company. It really wasn't that much fun being a lawyer for Bristol-Myers Squibb because they always wanted to stay so far back into the white side of the line that there was never much opportunity to judge where the line was or in the gray areas. Very committed to ethical behavior. And one of the uh, mantras we always used to have is before you do it, do you feel okay if it appears on the front page of the New York Times? Mm. (laughs) You know, it's a company that was headquartered uh, on Park Avenue just up the street – uh, in New York from the Times, and they basically said, if you don't want to see it on the on the cover of the New York Times, then you don't do it. Mm-hmm. By the way, what, what were some of Bristol-Myers Squibb's big drugs we, we might recognize? Well, uh, interesting, Bristol-Myers was one of the early developers of antibiotics, penicillin. Mm-hmm. Uh, back uh, in the war, it's a very old company. Bristol-Myers uh, went go back to the 1800s. A couple of guys, Bristol and Myers, created some things in their uh, garage up in uh, upstate New York. So um, penicillin was certainly one of them. Um, they're very heavy into cancer uh, oncology products. Is probably their, one of their leading areas uh, today. Uh, when uh, when Bristol Myers uh, bought Squibb, there was a drug called Captopril, which was the largest selling drug in the world at the time. It was a high blood pressure, hypertension medication that was uh, discovered from the Brazilian. Uh, pit viper snake, the venom of the snake. Of Someone got bit by this snake. They died because of falling blood pressure. 
and they converted this into uh, capitin, which is a you know an anti uh, hypertension drug. So these are some of the the, the statin drugs. Uh, Bristol Myers had Provacol, Provastatin. Lipitor is now the best known drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was well, they were one of the early developers. These drugs were discovered in Japan and uh, developed by uh, Bristol Myers, Merck, and Pfizer. Become mm-hmm. enormous drugs mm-hmm. in the world today. Have just joined us. We're talking with uh, Conan Grahams. Uh, he is a former uh, high official in the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, he's former general counsel for uh, for Pharma, the trade organization that represents the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. And as we've just heard, he was uh, head of international legal for uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. We're talking about the, uh, the big pharma as well as we're going to get into talking following uh, the break about relief efforts in Japan. Conan Grahams was in Japan as an area director of public affairs with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when the earthquake and tsunami hit in 2011. If you'd like to join this conversation, you're certainly welcome to do so at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Conan Grahams is in Logan to give the uh, Dean's Convocation Address. That is uh, for the John M. Huntsman School of Business, 1130 this morning in the business building on the USU campus. He'll be discussing ethics, international business, and relief efforts in Japan. That's uh, open, free and open to the public. Everyone is invited. 1130 in the business building on the USU campus uh, this morning. Uh, As I said, the number is 1-800-826-1495. Let me, as uh, as a part of uh, Big Pharma, I, I don't know... I don't know if people involved in that trade organization like the term Big Pharma. It, it might be seem, might be, seem to be uh, pejorative, but it's become to be the accepted term. Uh, it, do you, it do you embrace I, it? I, I think it is uh, pejorative. No, we pro- they probably wouldn't embrace it. But I remember when I took the job at Pharma uh, to to go back to Washington D.C. and one of my uh, one of the uh, a lawyer friend of mine who later went to the U.S. Uh, uh, Court of Appeals, so took John Roberts' place on the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, I told him I was going to Washington. He said, Pharma, he said, that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. He said, no, that's the 8,000-pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> so it's a very, it's definitely a very big organization along with uh, the oil industry yes. lobby. So, yeah. But uh, yes, it's a, big or, it's a big operation. It's a very important industry, and it's big. Uh, one of the one of the objections lobbed at Big Pharma, one of the I guess the burr under the saddle of many people is uh, is the lobbying, and in fact, uh, I'm reading that uh, Big Pharma, from uh, the last ten years, roughly '98 through uh, 2012. This is from Center for Public Integrity, Wendell uh, Potter, writing here. We've had him on this this group. Uh, he worked for the insurance industry, health insurance industry. Had a sort of a what you might call it religious conversion type uh, thing. Now he's now he's attacked the industry, but uh, he says that uh, if you if you look at uh, the total amount of money spent over those twelve years or fourteen years, uh, big pharma is at the top two point six billion dollars uh, ahead of even uh, even uh, big oil, and uh, some of the problems that people uh, say is that this revolving door. People in government go to the lobbying industry and back and forth and back and forth. One thing they cite is this is not pharmaceutical industry, but uh, that officials say in Max Baucus's office went and helped write the uh, Obamacare, and then they go back to Max Baucus's office and back and forth. And this is they say it's just too much money and too much revolving door. And I wonder what your response is, having having worked for Big Pharma. If I'd have known that number, I should have asked for a salary increase while yeah. I was a pharma. <laughs> That's a big number. Well, it it's a way of life in Washington, and uh, I. And I think that it has a purpose. Uh, it's part of our free speech. But it is you people who are public figures, uh, congressmen and so forth for years and uh, have uh, know the system and understand legislation. Uh, they'll step down from there and they'll go to work as a, as a lobbyist. Uh, there are pros and cons of that. They have probably sometimes too much influence. On the other hand, they understand the system and can help uh, – uh, draft legislation, create legislation. One of the things I think that's important to to uh, understand is that there, everybody has a lobbyist. I mean, it's not just uh, pharmaceuticals and oil. Uh, consumer groups, patient advocate groups, public interest groups, everybody lobbies, and so there are lobbyists on you know both sides of the aisle, and uh, and I think it's a very uh, legitimate. Uh, uh, profession to be in, having been there, I guess I have to feel that way. But uh, of course, the big money uh, 
is with pharmaceuticals and oil industry and the high tech industry. Obviously, the the consumer groups don't have as much money to spend on this, but but everybody has a voice in uh, in Washington, and um, you would hope it wouldn't take money. You're you're not allowed to go in and uh, you know pay a congressman for his vote, uh, obviously, and mm. lobbyists have to report everything they do spend uh, on congressmen, but. I think everybody has a voice, and uh, and my job at Farm was to to keep our voice legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Oh, so, so you weren't you weren't actually in there lobbying. You were, or were you? We had a lobbying group, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that uh, walked up to the hill every day. And uh, I didn't go to the hill that often myself. Uh, I was the watchdog of the legal department. Make the sure group. they they kept within the law. Right. 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 Uh, and, and so, of course, on the one hand, uh, you can't expect the lobbyists to regulate themselves. They're, they're operating within the system that is, right? Uh, but from from your perspective, uh, watching your people go up to, up to the hill, do, do you think um, do you think maybe money has too big of a, a voice? Uh, for, for example, if I was going to call my congressman as just Joe Blow Citizen, I may not get in the office as readily as a representative from Big Pharma. That's probably true. It's probably true. Uh, we'll say that uh, using pharma as an example, um, they we had people lobbyists, if you will, on both sides of the aisle. So it's not like you might expect that it be a pro-business uh, Republican organization, which it clearly is. But uh, uh, they're also uh, the time uh, was uh, a lot of Democratic lobbyists. Uh, people, when I say Democratic lobbyists, people who who had connections with uh, with the other side of the aisle. Two thousand six, when I was there, and the Democrats took over Congress. Um, you know, the complexion changed a little bit, and there was obviously a little more emphasis on the uh, other side of the aisle. But um, they uh, they certainly uh, are interested in, in, in both sides of it. But, you know, the, the money doesn't go to the to the congressmen themselves. The money goes to it goes to a lot of it goes to research. It goes to pay the salaries of the people who are who are working there. Uh, it goes for advertising. Uh, there are a lot of things that the money's uh, spent on. Um, so uh, but it's a big number, as you said mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, go to our first caller, who is uh, Betsy in Washington uh, County. Uh, Mr. Grimes, I'll ask you to put your headphones on so you can hear the, the uh, call. Wait until he puts his headphones on. Uh, Betsy, welcome to the program. Glad you called. Good morning. Um, he just uh, said the word that I want to talk about, and that's advertising. And I'm old enough to remember when you never, never saw a prescription drug advertised in any way. The only way that you knew about a prescription drug was when you went to your doctor. Now, that meant that the drug companies heavily, heavily tried to influence doctors to use their drugs, but they did not target the patient who knows very little about the drug and its side effects. Now, the TV ads tell you, my God, I don't think I'd ever take a drug for the rest of my life because they list all the horrible side effects. But the point is, I don't believe that the general public has the knowledge to make a choice about their prescription drugs. Their doctor does. And by the heavy, heavy advertising, both in magazines, newspapers, uh, especially television, we are inundated by um, advertisements for new drugs. If the pharmaceutical companies were compelled, and I can't say that there could be a law against it, but let's say they were compelled in some way to stop targeting the actual patient with these drug ads, think of the money that could be used in research instead of advertising, and the drug prices then might go down, and our entire healthcare system might be more affordable. Now, I, you know, you can you can say a company has the right to do anything they want to with their money, but I'm talking about ethics here, and I'm talking about just practicality. The average person has no idea uh, about uh, drugs and drug interactions. Pharmacists do. Doctors do. Thanks, uh, Betsy, for the, for the call. You raised some good points. We'll have a response from yeah, uh, Betsy, Mr. Betsy, those are good points, and you, you raise a, a big concern. Um, I don't think there's any going back on this issue. I think that drug advertising uh, is a free speech issue, uh, fundamentally. 
Uh, I was, frankly, more uh, upset to see lawyer advertising come on television than I was to see drug advertising. I think that a lot of people would say, Betsy, that uh, the drug advertising is a very good way to inform patients of therapies that are out there that they, might, that they may not be aware of. So I think it is very informative. Uh, the drug industry, um, we talked a little earlier about legislating certain aspects. The drug industry has taken upon itself a code of ethics uh, for advertising. Uh, they wanted to regulate themselves before there were things imposed on them that uh, that might even be worse. Um, one of the reasons you see, uh, if you pick up a Time magazine and read about a drug on one page, there'll be two more pages of small print uh, labeling issues. This is all required by the FDA. If you're going to advertise a drug, you have to tell the patient everything about that drug. Uh, and I'm sure nobody reads it, but it's all there. Uh, and then, Betsy, the right thing to do, as you've said, is you go into your doctor and you say, hey, I heard about this drug. Can you tell me about this? Um, so that's – I think it's a good educational process, uh, on the, all things considered. Uh, but the, clearly, there are some doctors who said, no, I wouldn't have given that patient that drug, but he came in and insisted on it. Mm-hmm. So I think the balance is important. Uh, I think in all things, we have to trust our doctors to give us the uh, – make the ultimate call on that. And an informed uh, patient is a good patient. So, But Betsy, you raised some really uh, important concerns. Thank, thanks, Betsy. Uh, I want to follow up on what what, uh, Betsy said there. Uh, Some uh, argue that uh, just the fact that we have big pharma, a lot of money is is invested. Pharmaceutical companies have to have to dump a lot of money into uh, research and development. They then have to recoup that cost. They have patent protection to, to help them do that. But part of recouping that cost is is, is advertising. You want to get that uh, awareness of the drug out there, not only with patients but with doctors. But uh, is the whole system perhaps based around pharmaceutical industry or driven by pharmaceutical industry, is that promoting perhaps a, a culture of we have a drug for everything and we can take a drug for anything and, and perhaps uh, downplaying in our culture preventive medicine? Or, and I'm sure you, you realize that Big Pharma gets attacked by alternative medicine. They say, you know, it's, you're the big 8,000-pound right. girl in the room and right. you're sucking the oxygen for us. <laughs> but but are, we, are we skewing a little bit to, too much in our culture to, uh, to take caring, uh, taking care of problems with drugs? Uh, Tom, those are good points. There's, I think there's two key points there. And I'm going to go back to sort of the research uh, investment of the companies and then help bring me back to okay. your question about uh, uh, alternatives and the balance on this. Um, the the pharmaceutical industry probably puts more i shouldn't say probably puts more uh, of its percentage of its earnings into research and development than any any other industry uh, about 21% uh of sales go into r&d nobody puts that much in high tech that i don't think even puts that much uh into it uh, last year um well i should say 2010 where we have the most recent numbers um Accurate numbers uh, the were fifty fifty billion dollars of research went into uh, went into the uh, pharmaceutical industry um, so uh, it's a it's an enormous amount of investment I think uh, now the average price for putting a new drug on the market cost investment cost is about one point two billion dollars to get a, a drug on the market it takes anywhere from ten to fourteen years uh, to do this. So um, this is why the companies advertise these drugs. They want to recover the investment, and this is uh, one of the reasons that the products are so expensive. Mm -hmm. Now, we could talk about the cost of drugs to the the patient forever today, um, but uh, that's the bottom line uh, reason for the the high price of drugs. Mm -hmm. Now, um, going to your question, I think if I got it right, is – is there too much emphasis on taking medicines when there might be other other forms uh, of cures? Um, I was in Washington, D.C. not too long ago trying to drive out of the city, caught in terrible traffic, and I was listening to the NPR, and I listened to two pro- interviews back-to-back, different programs completely, and one of them was an interview that was really uh, going after the pharmaceutical industry and the cost of drugs and so forth, and the other one was about the flu epidemic. And it was an interview with uh, NIH and the, uh, and the Center for Disease Control, I guess, CDC, and uh, the f- terrible flu epidemic that was going on. And a woman called in and says, why don't we have a cure for this? Why isn't there a cure for flu? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have an uncle with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, no cure. So 
this is what uh, the industry is trying to do. There's still a long ways to go to find cures for a lot of these medications, and, and it takes investment mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other little point, if I can dwell on this for just a second, and that is that um, uh, the U.S. patient finances a lot of the research and development in pharmaceuticals for the rest of the world because uh, the United States basically is the only country that does not have government-mandated price controls on pharmaceuticals. Mm. Uh, It's been tried here. um, But um, so um, a lot of the cost of drugs here is because there's so little profit to be made in other countries where the government controls the prices. Mm. And price controls really uh, put a lot of pressure on the amount of money to spend on uh, our R&D. So if we want to continue to save lives and enhance quality of life, as you said, that that R&D dollars really have to be there. We're going to continue this discussion. We'll take a, a brief break here uh, and then uh, come back uh, just to maybe uh, put, put a, a period on, on this part of the discussion. By the way, we're talking with Colin Grahams, who's a former pharmaceutical industry executive. In fact, he was with Pharma, the trade group, uh, and uh, he's a lawyer as well. I want to follow up with you with your uh, remark on advertising for lawyers. You're saying that as a lawyer. So, yes. But maybe we could do that right now. You, you say you were distressed when lawyers started advertising on, on television. Oh, I don't like it. Yeah. Personally, I don't like it. But again, it's, uh, it informs uh, people who need lawyers, and yeah. most of it is the, the ambulance, ambulance chasing lawyers. Mm-hmm. I guess that's one reason I, I don't like it very much. We as lawyers uh, I don't have uh, a lot of love for the uh, ambulance chaser plaintiff's lawyers. And, and the plaintiff's bar in America is one of the reasons for the high cost of pharmaceuticals, product liability, uh, medical malpractice and so forth is was really one of the reasons that drives up the cost of pharmaceuticals. So, mm. you know, we're not too happy with those guys. Mm. So, so to uh, put a period on, on the other point, uh, if I can characterize what you're saying, and I'll have you characterize it yourself, what, you're saying it's a kind of a balancing act. The companies have to recoup their costs, which are high costs of research and development. And to do that, you've got to get the word out through advertising. By the way, beautiful advertising. It's it's it, even though you kind of laugh because half of it is the uh, is the disclaimer, uh, and and so the, the good thing is awareness. Okay, this this I might have a problem. This drug might help me. On the other hand, it might tip me toward well, maybe I do need that drug when when perhaps I don't. And so I, I guess what you're saying is the doctor has to be the right the final arbiter there. Yeah, that's really it. Okay. Uh, so we're going to take a break. We'll come back with uh, Conan Grahams. We'll talk a bit more about the pharma school industry, and we'll get into talking about relief efforts in Japan. Conan Grahams was uh, Area Director of Public Affairs with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, when the earthquake and tsunami hit in 2011. Very interesting stories about the relief efforts there a couple of years ago. We're going to take a break back after this. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Weber State Cultural Affairs with an evening of transatlantic blues with Malian guitarist Habib Kwate and Delta bluesman Eric Bibb tomorrow at 7.30 in the Browning Center. For the performing arts, tickets at wsuculturalaffairs.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, today, for most of the program, we're talking with Conan Grahams. He's a Utah native, a lawyer, a lobbyist. He's held top positions in the pharmaceutical industry. He's former general counsel for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, or Pharma, the trade organization. Represents the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and he also was in Japan with the LDS Church uh, and became heavily involved in coordinating relief efforts when the uh, big earthquake and tsunami hit. We're going to be talking about that. Later in the program, we'll welcome in Richard Hatch, a professional magician. Uh, he has written a new children's book, Taro-san, the Fisherman and the Weeping Willow Tree, inspired by the ancient Japanese feat of Nanking Tamasadure. 
Tamasudari, uh, in which bamboo sticks are manipulated into figures. We'll have him do some of his magic, talk about his book. That's uh, at the end of the program. And you're welcome to join this conversation with Conan Grahams at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. About 10 minutes left in this discussion. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Just a couple more points on, on Big Pharma or Pharma. I'm not sure. You That's know, okay. Are you, are, you, are you okay with that? <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting here right, ne- right next to me. Um, one... Uh, one problem that uh, people have lobbed at uh, Big Pharma, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, has to do with other countries besides the United States. You're saying that the uh, lack of price controls in the United States, which you view as a good thing, allows pharmaceutical companies to recoup their costs, which is necessary to keep that engine that uh, pumps out these life-saving drugs going. But in other countries, you have price controls. Another problem that people see uh, is distribution, the widest and fairest distribution, lowest cost distribution to poor people, especially in third world countries of some of these life-saving drugs. Uh, this issue is brought up with the AIDS drugs, for example. I think still is in, in some countries. I wonder if you could address that issue for me. Sure. <clears throat> Tom, we could spend a lot of time discussing this, but let me see if I can hit a couple of high points. Um, first of all, uh, interesting case uh, with a disease called river blindness in uh, Latin America. Um, and um, there was actually a drug uh, discovered in Japan by the Kitasato Research Institute uh, for to cure river blindness. Uh, uh, this drug was then developed by Merck, uh, one of the big companies, and they took it to South America and basically distributed it free. Because the people who are getting river blindness, uh, the, sort of the natives there, uh, really could not buy this drug. And they completely eliminated the disease. So I think that's one of the real wonderful success stories, um, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, why was that drug not t- developed by a Japanese company? Um, and in fact, if you ask, you know, anybody, name a Japanese pharmaceutical product, nobody can name one. Uh, the statin products were discovered in Japan. Uh, some of the early bi- antibiotics were discovered in, in Japan. Um, but the Japanese companies don't sell them because they don't make enough money to be able to really go from the basic research done in their universities and take those then and develop them and sell them uh, worldwide because they don't make enough money in Japan to be able to do that because of the price controls on drugs there. So that's sort of the um, uh, balancing uh, dilemma that uh, we have, and we're fortunate in America that we're able to be, to take these discoveries and, and then uh, internationalize them. The other story I think you're probably interested in is, you know, the AIDS drug. And uh, the African continent has had terrible AIDS uh, problem over the years, uh, and the pharmaceutical companies have made uh, an effort not, I'm not sure it's the, enough effort, but it made a real effort to distribute drugs in Africa. When I was with Bristol-Myers, Bristol-Myers was one of the very early leaders in AIDS drugs. And I had a very aggressive program to, uh, to distribute those drugs. I'm not sure freeze the right word, but certainly at the lowest price uh, possible uh, to the governments there who then turned around and distributed those free to people who needed them. So uh, I always felt good about that effort. And uh, um, I had some numbers on... Um, Actually, on the AIDS, uh, since the AIDS drugs were first uh, approved in 1995, uh, deaths from AIDS uh, has gone down 80% in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So, And I think a lot of that has taken place in Africa and uh, as a result of the pharmaceutical company's efforts to make those available. Mm. Uh, just a final question on the pharmaceutical industry, and I want to get into talking a bit about Japan. Um, just a question of uh, internal discussions that might have to do with ethics, just being in the life sciences, and pharmaceutical industries maybe aren't positioned right in the center of this, but you're, but you're in, the, in this group. Uh, perhaps some therapies and uh, some discoveries, for example, um, patenting of the, of the genome, um, and questions of who should own that. And should there be ownership of that? There, I think there's some lawsuits going going forward. Myriad Genetics here in in uh, Salt Lake City is is, uh, is sort of part of that. Um, that type of discussion with those ethical um, choices, I'm sure anywhere in the life in the life science industries, you probably have some discussions on that in in terms of which things to even go and research and develop. 
That discussion is too complicated for me. <laughs> Patenting of genomes. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm probably not enough of, a, of an expert uh, mm-hmm. on that. Uh, the uh, We could talk a lot about the uh, patenting of biotech drugs, mm-hmm. biologics. Right. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we want have the time or want to get into that. But, right. Uh, but those discussions are going on But those discussions are going on. And there's a lot of ethical discussions, uh, you know, of... Uh, of that type, and uh, I, I now that I'm back from Japan after spending two years as a volunteer over there, I probably need to get back into this a little bit right. uh, more. But it's complicated; those are complicated issues. And uh, Senator Hatch from Utah has been quite involved in some of these issues, mm-hmm. and he would be a good one to bring in on your program. Very good, we'll do that. Let's talk about Japan. You uh, and your wife were uh, were in Japan 2011, I believe, when the earthquake hit. You were in Tokyo, the uh, the church headquarters there, I think. Uh, tell us a little bit about what. What happened when the earthquake first hit to you personally? And then talk a little bit about the uh, relief efforts that happened. Okay. Uh, Very briefly, just on a little bit of a a background, personal note on that. Uh, The reason we were there uh, really is because of a a Logan uh, native, Gary Stevenson, who, uh, of course, is the uh, founder of uh, Icon Laboratories here, one of the world's largest, uh, if not the largest, uh, manufacturer of health and fitness equipment. But he was the uh, area president in Japan at the time. Um, I had left pharma and come back to Utah after 35 years being away to start my own practice, minding my own business. And he called us up and said, hey, will you come to Japan and do this? And I said, well, um, you know, I gave him a long list of reasons why we couldn't come. I said, but if you're calling us to come, we'll come. He called back a few days later and said, we really like you to come. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that my wife and I had been in Sendai 10 years earlier uh, as the mission president. So I'd, we'd spent th- three years in Sendai uh, previously. So we go to Japan in uh, 2010, and within a few months, the uh, the earthquake hits, and there we are. Uh, the day it hit, we were in our office in Tokyo on the second floor of the church office building. Uh, the both of us were there, and I've I've been and spent 18 years in Japan, and I've been through a lot of earthquakes in Japan, never anything like this. And the earthquake was 300 miles away from us. Um, at, uh, but when I shook, we, the first time I've ever got down under my desk, and I was thinking to myself about the 19, great 1923 earthquake that destroyed Tokyo, and I said to myself, is this it? This might be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was bad. We turned on the TV, and then we started to see the early stages of the tsunami coming in. Uh, didn't look all that bad in the early, very early uh, television reports are on it, but it just was an incredible disaster. Th- 300 miles of coastline. Uh, you know, the waves were coming in at 30 feet high. They were funneling up the canyons and uh, reaching a depth of 120 feet deep. Uh, as they went up the canyons, comp- wiped out 92 towns and villages uh, along the coastline. So it's a phenomenally unbelievable disaster. Mm. And and then, of course, communications go down, and that's what you're <clears throat> tasked with, right? Right, communications. right. That was uh, one of the really interesting things is that everything was down. And uh, we talk a lot about emergency preparedness here in Utah, but one of the things I didn't really appreciate is that the number one biggest problem uh, was uh, that you there was no gasoline. You couldn't get into the area to, to get in and do the relief efforts. There was no gasoline available. The roads were out. Uh, cell phones went to dead because there's no communications ability within about a day. And there was just no way to get there or talk to them or find out what was going going on. So I always think now when I'm home, how do I store enough gasoline in my car mm. if something happens and the gas stations are out that I can get around and get the help I need or give the help others need? Uh, it, it, one interesting story, by the way, there's a, there's some journal entries on the web. You just uh, Google uh, Conan Graham, so they'll come up. Uh, you were talking about how, and then the media comes, and you're tasked with shepherding Diane Sawyer, I think. And that, so, you know, we all want to know what's happening, but then the media kind of adds an, an extra layer of, of trouble on top of people who are trying to do the, the, the relief efforts. Right. Right. It was, uh, yeah, they, Diane Sawyer did come in. They called us because they knew we had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, ability. We had a lot of people in the area. And the bottom line on Diane, ABC, was that they wouldn't let her helicopter. She came to Tokyo. They would not let her helicopter land anywhere in the area. The place was just, you know, it was a total disaster. The airport was closed. And so she turned around and went home and later... We did set her up with an interview with one of the missionaries oh, by, interesting. you know, by telephone. But uh, uh, then another problem, of course, is logistics. You have a lot of people that want to help, a lot of supplies that that can help. How do you get them there? 
And I understand you involved McDonald's. <laughs> we did. We uh, thanks to uh, actually uh, Gary Stevenson here used Icon Labs. Uh, uh, Icon Health and Fitness had a manufacturing operation in China. They brought in uh, 15,000 blankets within about the five days of the earthquake uh, in from China. But then we had to figure out how to get them up there with no trucks, no roads, no gasoline. Uh, we found out that McDonald's had permission to go up because they were taking up food. We had some connections, you know, friends uh, friends through the church, basically, of McDonald's. And they offered to take blankets up for us. So we, we used them to, to take the blankets up. So Interesting. Yeah, the, I guess you you reach for any connection you can. Yeah, sure. you really yeah. do. Yeah. You do. I might share one list, yes. list story if I yes. could, because uh, speaking of communications, a lot of people here I think saw the news reports on CNN and so forth about uh, Taylor Anderson, who was a young woman that was teaching English uh, up in Ishinomaki when this happened, and she went missing. And we got a call from our public affairs office in Washington D.C., uh, who had a, fr- a, f- a friend of a friend of, of Taylor Anderson's mother. The mother knew that we had missionaries all over Japan. Called the office in Washington, said, "Can you help find us, find our daughter?" They called, and of course, we had so much communications problems and ability to get up there. Our missionaries that had been evacuated out of the area. But uh, to make a long story short, I went up on about day ten. I was staying in a hotel up there. And uh, I, when, when I went to check out of the hotel, there was a tall a foreigner, American guy, standing there at the desk with me. And I said, oh, why are you here? I thought he was maybe there uh, reporting because <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of camera equipment there. And he said, I've come to pick up the body of my daughter, mm. Taylor. Uh, so that was, for me, probably the one of the most uh, impactful mm. experiences uh, that I had uh, to realize that, uh, th- that this had really hit home um, and with someone that— uh, uh, I'd had a phone call about and ended up that she uh, did not survive this. You know, traumatic experience for, for many, many people. It was. Still still uh, trying to recover, I'm sure. Yes. Conan Grahams will uh, talk uh, more about his experiences in Japan. You want to hear more stories, you'll have to go to the lecture today. He'll be talking about ethics and international business as well. That is the Dean's Convocation at the John M. Huntsman School of Business on the USU campus in the business building, 1130 this morning, and that uh, talk is free and open to the public. Following a brief break, we're going to be uh, joined by Richard Hatch, professional musician in the Logan area. He's just published a children's book, Taro-san, The Fisherman, and The Weeping Willow Tree. It has a very interesting story. Hope you'll stay tuned. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll visit several countries where Portuguese is the principal language. Countries such as Brazil, Mozambique, Cape Verde, and Angola. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Portuguese Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that of every 1,000 babies born in the United States, three will have hearing loss? Early identification and management is important for speech and language development. Amplification as well as speech and language treatment can start in the first weeks of life. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. At Utah Public Radio, we discuss current events, social issues, gardening tips, politics, talk with local authors, and many other important Utah-related subjects. On Access Utah, an original program produced by Utah Public Radio. I'm Addison Pace, production intern for Access Utah. Join us weekday mornings 9 to 10. Utah Public Radio, Utah's favorite public radio station for providing your access to things that matter in Utah. Get your creative juices flowing. Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR mug. Draw, paint, or photograph your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be cooler than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. Entries must be submitted by Monday, February 11th. For ideas or for more information, go to upr.org. Thanks for staying with us through the break. I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. We make a transition to a children's book written by professional magician Richard Hatch. Many in the Logan area are are familiar with Richard Hatch, uh, who, along with his wife, uh, runs the Hatch Academy of Magic and Music. It's in the uh, old Thatcher Mansion in uh, Logan. 
And uh, Richard Hatch holds two graduate degrees in physics from Yale University. But he writes he finds it easier, apparently, to violate the laws of nature than to discover them. A childhood interest in magic became a lifelong obsession after he met and was encouraged by the German magician uh, Friedo Raxen in 1970. He's a full-time professional deceptionist since uh, 1983. And his latest project's very interesting. It's a children's book, Taro-san, the Fisherman and the Weeping Willow Tree. It's a story about the struggles and triumphs of a young fisherman in old Japan, inspired by the ancient Japanese feat of Nanking Tamasaduri. And uh, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Tamasudare. Tamasudare. Okay. Welcome, Richard Hatch. Thank Thank you, you. Tom. Glad to be here. So you you, you write that uh, this uh, story was written in America, translated in Japan, and illustrated in Hungary. Yeah, it's an international project, and uh, couldn't have been done without the Internet. Uh, I had the idea for doing a book of a, it's essentially an illustrated version of a performance script that I developed over a number of years for a Japanese feat. Uh, the Japanese tradition uh, is to sing a song. They wear a special costume. They sing a song. And as they sing the song, they, they take this uh, bamboo mat. I brought one here. Obviously, people can't see it, but they can maybe hear it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's made out of 56 uh, bamboo sticks. Mine are about 15 inches long. And they're tied together with 108 pieces pieces of string in a special way that makes it very flexible. So you can manipulate it into various figures, kind of an ancient version of of the Transformer toy. Um, But the Japanese tradition is they wear this costume, they sing a song, and they don't tell a story. There's no narrative. They just name the figures. It's kind of like charades, I guess. Uh, And that didn't work for me. I wasn't going to wear the costume, sing the song, or or just make the figures. And uh, so I came up with a story over time. My wife added, who's a violinist, Rosemary, uh, she plays a Japanese piece, Haro no Umi, The Sea of Spring, by Michio Miyagi. And so that changed the story a little bit to get the narrative to fit the music. And over time, it matured to where I thought for some time, boy, this would make a great little standalone children's book. Hmm. Uh, But it needed illustrations. And that was the bottleneck for a long time. I went to the Logan Library, talked to the children's librarian. She was helpful, showed me some Japanese storybooks for children. But the illustrations weren't quite what I was looking for. Uh, So I finally went on the internet at the suggestion of a friend, found a website, uh, elance.com. There are several like that where you can put out a bid. And I said, looking for a children's illustrator uh, that can do Japanese-style illustrations. And I got bids from all over the world. And I settled on uh, accepting a bid from this guy in Hungary, Andras Balok, and he was terrific to work with. It's not traditional painting. There's no... It's all digital, so he can. I can say, move the move the sun over here. Put put a rainbow in that picture, and instantly it's done, and I can proof it. And so he was very responsive. I wanted illustrations uh, that were inspired by the great Japanese artist Hokusai, because one of my original ideas on before I came up with the story was, well, I could do a uh, use the sticks to illustrate uh, Hokusai's famous series, Thirty Six Views of Mount Fuji. I'd make one form for every one of the prints, and in the background on a big slide projector would be one of the Hokusai prints. That didn't quite come together. I still think it's a great idea, but it led me to the idea of having that style illustrations to to go with the story. And uh, it happened very quickly. I caught in touch with him in September, and the book was in print and available for sale on Amazon in early December. It's kind of quite remarkable. Um, and I'm very pleased with how it's worked out. It's a performance that uh, I prefer to do it with my wife, Rosemary. Uh, I often do it as a solo effect. I do it in most of my performances uh, currently is one of my favorite things. Um, I do have a couple of upcoming performances where people can see it, uh, public performances. Those are uh, February 14th and 15th, American West Heritage Center, Evening of Elegance and Magic. That, that is sold that out, one is but sold I wanna, out. you can call them and make reservations for next okay. year. Okay, <laughs> but all it, right. Uh, that, that'll just be happening, so we'll whet the appetite of the people who already have tickets. And then on the 26th of this month, 1130 uh, a.m., the 17th Annual Weber Storytelling Festival, uh, Eccles Conference Center in Ogden. More information there at community.weber.edu slash storytelling. So that's on the 26th, 11.30. Right. And then you got some book signings on the 23rd, 4 p.m. at Hastings in Logan. Uh, on March 2nd, 6 p.m., uh, Dolly's Bookstore in Park City. And on March 9th, 10 to noon at the book table in Logan. So some opportunities for people to, right. to see. Right. And the book this. signings uh, and the Weaver Storytelling are all free events. Uh, mm-hmm. People can go and uh, don't have to buy a book, uh, but can look at it. And I will include a performance of the effect at those public events. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole thing takes about six minutes uh, mm-hmm. without the music. At some of those, I'm hoping Rosemary will be available to accompany as well, because I do prefer that. But right. uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, 
Uh, it's an unusual piece. Uh, this is not a traditional performance of it. As I say, it's a story. I first saw it, uh, I moved to Houston with Rosemary in 1985, and one of my first engagements there was as one of the house magicians at a private nightclub at that time, a place called Magic Island, which has since closed, but it featured magicians uh, exclusively as the entertainment. And a magician from out of town who came and performed was a, an English-born but now American uh, resident magician, Martin Lewis, very creative performer. And he had learned this on a lecture tour that he did in Japan, uh, teaching his repertoire to magicians, and they introduced him to an old master of this, mm-hmm. and he fell in love with it, mastered it himself, gave it his unique presentation, which is somewhat narrative, um, and closes his performance with it. So I saw mm-hmm. him do it, and he was kind enough to, to share some of his information with me. I went to Japan on a visit, picked up a set of the sticks, couldn't really make heads or tails of how to do it. He came back to Houston on a lecture tour to, to U.S. magicians, and one of the things he had decided at that point to release was his handling for this effect. And uh, so I purchased that from him, and he instructed me in it, and uh, he deserves a great deal of my personal thanks, because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't really be performing the feat. My presentation is quite different from his, um, but uh, he if it weren't for him, I, I'm sure I would not be doing the effect, and, and his performance of it is, is quite unique. If, if someone's interested in seeing it, they can go to YouTube and type in uh, to the search field Tamasudare, which is spelled just the way it sounds, T-A-M-A-S-U-D-A-R-E. They'll see many of the traditional performances uh, with the sing-song version where they there's quite rhythmic. They slap the, the rods together to make a, a clapping kind of sound as they sing this song, and they can find some non-traditional performances as well, including including my own. We're talking with Richard Hatch, a professional magician. He's with uh, Hatch Academy of Magic and Music uh, in uh, Logan. And uh, you have an opportunity to see some of the things he's uh, talking about uh, on the February 26th, 1130 a.m. Weber uh, Storytelling Festival in Ogden. Uh, Book signings on February 23rd in Hastings, uh, 4 p.m. March 2nd, 6 p.m. at Dolly's Bookstore in Park City. And March 9th, 10 to noon at the Book Table in Logan. I want to just, we have a couple of minutes left. And this this is totally unfair to to spring on you. But you, I mean, you have graduate degrees in physics. You went into magic. What What is it about magic that that uh, um, was such a draw for you? Magic was an obsession for me since childhood. About age 10, I got introduced to it. Uh, and uh, I wa- it was so obsessive, I wanted to do it professionally. And I had been inspired by this German magician that you mentioned, Fredo Roxon, while I was living in Germany as an exchange student uh, in high school. Uh, but when I came back to Logan, um, I... I, what had been a very extroverted activity before going to Germany became a very introverted activity because he did sleight of hand magic. I had been doing apparatus magic. There was a magic shop in Salt Lake, and I would buy things there and put them in the talent show at the high school. And his kind of magic demanded quite a bit of, of discipline and practice. And so what had been extroverted became introverted, and so I lost sight of the fact that it's a performing art. You've got to get out there and do it for people. So I, and I didn't have any role models that were doing it professionally the way I wanted to. So in college, I really gave it up cold turkey and shifted my interests and, and ended up majoring in physics. And then I spent a year at USU in graduate school and then uh, transferred to Yale uh, for a couple of years. And along the way, kind of for good behavior, more or less, picked up a couple of master's degrees, didn't write a dissertation or anything. While I was back east, though, I picked up magic again as a hobby. And the old obsessions all came back to where they overwhelmed my my fascination with physics, which persists. But I decided, look, I, I'm young enough. I can give this a try. If it doesn't work out, I can always go back to my graduate studies and, and try and be a physicist again. Uh, 30 years later, it'd be pretty hard for me to go back to <laughs> physics. The whole field has changed. String theory, I have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, but fortunately, yeah, it's worked out, and I've been able to, to make a career doing what I love. And uh, you have many opportunities to see Richard Hatch uh, perform his uh, magic, uh, especially in northern Utah area. Uh, the, the next opportunities for you will be the 23rd of this month, 4 p.m. at Hastings in Logan, the 26th, 11.30 in the morning, the uh, Weber Storytelling Festival, Eccles Conference Center in Ogden, uh, March 2nd, 6 p.m., Dolly's Bookstore in Park City, and uh, March 9th, 10 to noon at the book table in Logan. The new book is Tarosan, the Fisherman, and the Weeping Willow Tree. And you can go uh, online to, uh, to, to view some of this. It's at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, uh, various uh, Hastings and, and the book table here in town, uh, and uh, available from my website. Can I give a quick yes. shout-out to that? Yes, definitely. So www.hatchacademy.com, and I do try and update that with uh, public appearances so people can use that as a way to find out where to see what's going on. Okay. Richard Hatch, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.